Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast, Richard Lane on Monday, May the 23rd. This week we're discussing a good news story concerning teenage pregnancy in England. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Kay Wellings. Hi, welcome. Your title, please, at the London School. I'm Professor of Sexual and Reproductive Health Research at the School of Hygiene. We're looking, discussing teenage pregnancies, specifically in England, not the whole of the UK. And this relates to a government strategy. Can you tell us about the government's 1999 teenage pregnancy strategy? It was defined, first of all, in terms of its dual aims, and those were to bring about a 50% reduction in under-18 conceptions and to limit the extent to which young parents were excluded from education, work and training. It was a complex, multifaceted strategy at national and local level. At national level, a media campaign in 2000 in young people's magazines and radios changed norms, challenged myths around teenage pregnancy and provided information on contraception. At the same time, training was set up for teachers providing sex education and youth-friendly contraceptive services were set up. And support was provided to young parents with housing and childcare. And at local level, a teenage pregnancy coordinator was employed in every local area and buy-in for the strategy was secured at the highest level, so directors of public health were very much on board. Why did we need to do this research? The main reason the strategy was set up was that our rates, our rates of uh, teenage pregnancy, were higher in the UK generally than they were in other comparable countries in uh, the Western world. They weren't only higher, but they were very strongly linked with uh, deprivation. So if you map them, if you map deprivation rates and you map teenage pregnancy rates, you'll get a very similar distribution. So the hotspots are the old industrial areas, the seaside towns and some areas in London. And this meant that we were addressing not only teenage pregnancy, but also this cycle of deprivation where young parents beget young parents and add an increment of deprivation to their already existing deprivation. The paper you're the lead author on that we're publishing, this is a 14-year observational longitudinal study. So are you basically applying sort of academic principles to measure the success or not of this government campaign? We are, and with difficulty in a sense that obviously um, if you're evaluating a, a public health intervention, then the best way of doing that is with an experimental method, often a randomised control trial. Of course, when a strategy is nationwide, you don't have that option at your disposal. And so you've got to think of of other ways of trying to assess progress towards the goals of the intervention and to attribute uh, effect to both intervention-related and non-intervention-related factors. In terms of how you did this, you, you were very much involved in your research with over 100, 100, nearly 150 local authorities around England, and you tapped into the NATSAL programme, which you're well known for. Tell us how you did that. Well, a consortium of researchers uh, from the London School of Hygiene and from UCL were commissioned by the government. Um, I led that consortium in 2000. We were commissioned to carry out a formal evaluation of the strategy until 2004. In fact, it turned out to be 2005, and we, we reported that in the Lancet in 2006 and we used local authority routine data and we also had a dedicated survey to do it, not NATSAL, not the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. But parallel with that, we have carried out NATSAL every 10 years from 10 years before the strategy to 10 years after it and those have been very opportune 
timelines. Ten years before the strategy gave the knowledge base, the evidence base, to form the strategy. The 2000 NATSAL survey provided a baseline from which to assess progress. And the 2010, of course, going into 2012, gave us our post to the pre and post. NATSAL contains postcode related data and so we're able to see what the deprivation level is at individual level for the participants from their postcode. And describe the main findings. What are the most salient points in terms of peaks, troughs? There's been a 51% drop in under-18 conceptions between 1999 and 2014. That is a higher percentage drop than the target of 50% at the start, which everyone said would set up the strategy for failure. It was just too big. We need to distinguish here between two different trends. There's an overall trend, almost universally, towards fewer teenage pregnancies, and that reflects shifts towards longer time spent in education, later time entering employment, later time settling down and having children generally. Now, that's happened in many countries, but in England, the maternity rate amongst under-18s has seen a sharper drop than it has in other European countries, in the 28 countries of the EU, in fact. What we found was that we've, amongst the participants in the NATSAL surveys, there was an increase in the proportion who received sex education from school lessons rather than the media or other sources. There was an increase in the proportion who had higher educational qualifications. And there was an increase in the proportion, a slightly smaller increase, in the proportion using contraception at first sex. In a way, what it looks as if has been happening is that the strategies added an increment of success to uh, an existing trend towards lower rates of under-18 conceptions. Thank you, that's interesting. You've already touched on those drivers, which just wanted to confirm as well. What were the major drivers? It relates to education, improved sexual health and particularly access to contraception. You do mention in the paper the importance of uh, intrauterine device as a form of contraception here. Definitely long-acting contraception has been identified in, in several countries as associated with lower rates of teenage pregnancy and we certainly in other areas of our analysis have seen an increase in use. We are not able to link that with under 18 conceptions because of the way we ask the questions, but certainly that's been a factor. But often people sort of tend to think, well, it's education or it's contraception. Of course, it's both. Education doesn't stop people getting pregnant. It provides the motivation to do so, whereas contraception supplies the means by which they can do it. So it's broadly based. We talk about distal factors and more proximate factors relating to health behaviours. And it's both those things that have led to this decline. So in terms of where we go from here, clearly the landscape, particularly the resources in, in the public sector. But for this to work, this strategy, it needs local authorities to, to be engaged and involved. We know that times are hard and they're, they're, they're quite strapped for cash. We know that public health within England is having cuts too. Is there a danger that given the current financial climate, it might be difficult to sustain what we've achieved so far? In answer to that, it definitely needs sustaining. Our rates are still high by comparison with those in the rest of Europe. They're not comparably as high as they were. I don't think we need to be too 
pessimistic in some senses, the norm change, the change in social norms, is unlikely to be reversed. At the start of the teenage pregnancy strategy in 2000, there was a tendency for young women to model their behaviour on what were called at the time sort of celebrity bumps. It was quite fashionable to be pregnant. And now, <laughs> now the, the likes of Victoria Beckham was sporting their uh, celebrity bumps. It's distinctly uncool to get pregnant now. I have that on good authority from several teachers that there has been a norm change. It's no longer smart to be pregnant early. That's probably not going to change. The increase in the educational level is not going to change, we hope. The recent 2012 Education Act requires young people to now to be in school, to be in educational training to 17. So those things are not going to change. Obviously the contraceptive provision needs continuing resources and so we should be worried if there are any cuts to those. And it would be wonderful if sex education could be mandatory. In this country it's not, in many other countries it is. And that gives a real legitimation to teachers in providing lessons. Thank you very much Professor Kay Willings. Just a final thought. So clear Clearly, we're reporting good news here. In simplistic terms, is this saying that the government strategy introduced in 1999 has worked, as we've just described, or whether underlying trends already in the right direction? In other words, it's great, it's good news, but it's not as simple as saying it was just this strategy that has brought about the, the whole of the change. That's exactly right. The underlying trend was in the right direction, but the sustained and complex, well-thought-out strategy has added an element of success to the progress that other countries haven't seen. Professor Kay Willings, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you.